Still a short video. <laughs> Good morning. Don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, thank you. Over the years, this congregation has been so faithful and so generous, and I really don't deserve it. There's people who volunteer here who have been here just as long and who've poured out their lives into the work of the church um, that go unsung heroes, unrecognized, and um, God bless them. And the only reason why I am able to do and be in ministry and Pastor Tim is able to be in ministry and Pastor John is able to do what he's able to do is because of you, because of the church, and because of your offerings and what you put in that plate, what you might give online every single week. That's what supports the ministry of the church. And that's what allows us to be able to go out. When we go out and we minister, we minister in your name. We minister in the name of Christ in the church because you send us out. And that's the only reason why we are able to do what we do. And so, thank you. Now, for the next 40 minutes, <laughs> if you want to get your Bible out and turn to page 940, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to reach in front of you. If you have it on your phone, that's good. You can open that up. If you don't own a Bible, you're a guest with us today, you'd like to have one, please do feel free to take the one you have in your hands in front or in front of you. Take that home as a gift uh, from us to you. To you. <clears throat> up until a few minutes ago, I was having a really, really bad day. <laughs> this morning, to start out shaving, I nicked my upper lip, and you know, that thing is going to bleed forever, right? You're in the shower, it's like the, the scene from Psycho, all the blood going on. <clears throat> and then I walked out of the house to get in, the, get in my uh, truck, and I uh, was uh, confronted by a skunk. <laughs> so that skunk's like, and then it hissed, and it went like, Shh. and then in a rush to get back in the house, I hit my head on the door. Now I got a little mark on the forehead. Then I go outside to open the gate and I cut my finger on the gate. I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck on the outside. But what I was reminded of with this message today and in my preparation for it is, I am also a wreck on the inside. This is gonna be a pretty hard message perhaps for some of us to hear today. It should be a hard message. We're all going to have to take a gut check because in preparing for this message today, I had to, it caused me to do a lot of soul searching. It caused me to do a lot of soul searching because what Paul is writing today, I mean, I'm guilty of everything that Paul is writing about. And today we continue to work through our series, The Heart of It All, and we're working through the Book of Romans. If you're a guest with us today or you're uh, joining us, coming in with us online, Welcome. Um, we continue through the Romans with the heart of it all is our series. The book of Romans, of course, was uh, um, written or actually was uh, transcribed by someone who Paul dictated to them. That's a letter to the people, the believers in Rome. And it was written to, as it says in uh, 1-7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. What's written in this letter pertains to not only those who it was originally written to, but it's for you and for me, it's for everyone. It's for 
all people both back then and for us here today. Because what's written in this book affects our lives. As we continue through this uh, journey of Romans, what we're learning about really, because this is really what the book of Romans is about. It's about Jesus. And it's about God's righteousness. That's what the book of Romans is about. It's about how faith in Christ reshapes our lives. And then how that faith we have in Christ challenges you and me to live our life as one of God's kids. And it challenges us and it gives us hope. Today our topic is all about all of our unfaithfulness. And we're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 3, 1 through 20. Because that's what this section points out. Is all of our unfaithfulness. As I said, it's going to cause us to take a gut check today on just where we stand with God and those who are around us. But it's also a message of hope. It's also a message of hope and joy knowing that Christ still loves us and forgives us. Paul starts out in Romans chapter 3, 1 through 8, and what's happening is here is Paul in these first eight verses is he's imagining that somebody is objecting to what he wrote in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 of his letter, he's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters and how they're sinners and how they are in need of salvation. And so Paul is writing, now he's he's imagining that somebody that he's written to is objecting and he's trying to imagine some of the questions that they would be bringing up. Paul had pointed out previous to this that being a Jew is not a matter of circumcision. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of the outside of us. It's a matter of the heart. Paul echoes Jesus when Paul wrote in chapter 2.29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So now Paul's imagining all of these questions that might be coming up. He begins, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. So the first question is, what advantage has the Jew? Paul answers and he says, well, a lot. First of all, they were entrusted with the word of God. God gave them his written word. He chiseled it in stone and handed it to them on Mount Sinai. They were supposed to take that word that he had given them and they were supposed to go and tell others. They were supposed to spread it to all of the world, everyone who they came in contact with. Jesus even, God even planted them where he did in Jerusalem, in the uh, promised land. He planted them in that specific spot for a reason. Because at that time, all of the trade routes went through that land. God planted them there so that they would tell the story of God's faithfulness. But, however, what they did was they turned in on themselves. 
they turned inward and they made keeping the law, doing the right thing, their way of salvation. They argued, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would sit around and they would argue endlessly about all kinds of little detail things that meant nothing instead of focusing on those things that really mattered. For example, they argued over how many steps it constituted. It was a violation of the Sabbath and whether spitting on a rock was possible during uh, the Sabbath or whether spitting on a mud is a violation. One would be right, the other would be wrong. They used the law f- for that reason. Jesus, in Matthew 23, 24, called them blind and said that it was like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And that's what they did. So here, Paul, in these first eight verses, he's pointing, he's pointing out that because some of them did not believe does not mean that God did not keep his promises. Because some did not measure up to what God expected of them or what God required of them doesn't mean that he was not interested in the orders of worship and the sacrificial system that he had set up. That's not what it means. No, Paul says, because that would suggest that God is the one that failed. Let everyone be liar. Let everyone fail. God would and still does keep all of his promises. Paul also knocks down the argument that sin glorifies God, that by our sinning it makes God look good, that by our sinning God now has the opportunity to show much more love and forgiveness. No, if that were true, God could not judge, and the world would be held in evil with no way out forever. God is always faithful. He is always just. Sin never glorifies God. Sin is always evil. It's never good. So here in verses 1 through 8, Paul's dealing with the objections that he expected would be in response to what he was teaching, that his fellow Jews were in much need of the salvation and the gospel and forgiveness as the Gentiles. But then now, beginning in verse 9 through 20, he changes his focus. And he sums up it all in verses 9 and 10. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. So here in verses 9 and 10, Paul is pointing to us. He's pointing to all of our unfaithfulness. No one is righteous. Well, that statement should cause you and I to do some soul searching. To look at our own weaknesses. And to be humble. And to really seek the grace of God in the right way. In our relationship with Him and those in our lives, our family and our friends. Admit that we're wrong. The problem with that is, is that's something that's hard for us to do. Let's take a look at that. Let's back up. Let's go back to that first question that Paul asks. He says, what advantage has? Fill in the blank. There you could put my name. You could put your name. You could put there any person's name, any group of people who rely on religious works in their relationship with God because that's what Paul was saying. 
So the question for you and for me is, as we search our souls, and as we come up with an answer, all of us individually for ourselves is, have we ever done that? We come in here and worship every single Sunday. We attend Bible studies. We pray. We give. We do all of those things. Now, how often are we tempted to think that because we do those things now, we feel good. And because we feel good, we are now in a right relationship with God. That is to say that it's because we did something that now we are right with God. That's the temptation. How often have we focused on the source of doing, being the source of our relationship with God, rather than what Christ has done for us? Again, it's something that we all have to search and answer for us ourselves. Paul goes on to write, he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Because that would suggest that God doesn't keep his promises. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever encountered something in your life, a problem or a situation or some difficulty where you felt that God had let you down or he didn't keep his promises? Remember, God is always faithful. Often the things that we encounter in our life are it's our fault. We're the ones that were unfaithful. I always like to use the illustration of walking down a sidewalk, kind of like walking through life, and you come to an intersection, and now it's time to enter into the street, cross the street. You're going to make a decision. What are you going to do in a particular situation? And you look at the light, and you get that blinking red hand. <laughs> it's like God saying, Craig, don't make that decision. That's the wrong way to go. Don't do that. That's not what I want you to do. That's not how I want you to act. That's the wrong thing to do. How often, though, does Craig step off the curb against the red hand and gets smushed? It's not God's fault. It's not that God was unfaithful. It's not that he didn't keep his promises. I'm the one that went against what he wanted for me to do as a child of God. God is always faithful. He keeps all of his promises, both law, when we get into those situations, we suffer the consequences, but also the gospel promises that there is salvation, there is forgiveness for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're sinners and our sins do not prove that God is unfaithful. No one is righteous, no not one. When I was in the seminary and studying uh, for, um, to be a deacon, as Jerry mentioned, and to be ordained, one of the things that we were taught is that Boy, when you get up there on Sunday, you had better have scriptural proof for what you're saying. <laughs> Duh. But this is exactly now what Paul does. As we continue, Paul's saying, okay, look, I know that you all might be disagreeing with me, but just so that you don't think that I'm making all of this up, here's some scriptural proof to back up what I'm saying. And what he does now is he uses the Bible of their time, the Old Testament, to back up what he is saying to these people he says first, none is righteous, no, not one. There he is quoting from Ecclesiastes. Now I want you to think about this. Think about somebody in your life that you know. Maybe someone who doesn't know Jesus. Think about them. And they're, they're good people. They're good people. They don't cause any trouble. They're law-abiding. 
They're loving, they're kind, they're gracious. Perhaps they might even be your best friend. Paul's talking about them, right? Because how often do we add on the thought, except me? Paul's not talking about me. When would we have we not sought out God's direction in our life? When things go wrong in life, where's the first place that we go? Where you go in a time of trouble, the first place you go in a time of trouble, that's your God. Guilty. Over the years, experienced difficulties, financial difficulties, the ups and downs of life. First thing I do is I turn inward, try and solve the problem myself. Worry about how this is going to affect financially and what's going to happen. And finally, when I come to my senses, I go to God in prayer, and there I find peace. Yeah, I still have to deal with the problem, but I find peace that releases all that anxiety, all that stress. And you want to know what? It's always worked out in the end. Been able to look back and look at God's blessings each and every time. And then there's the flip side. How many times when things are good do we really, truly take time to get on our knees and to thank God for the blessings of everyday life? Or do we just ignore them or take them for granted? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ for you. And he's not done. Then he goes on in verse 12 that all have turned aside. Do we struggle with this one? Search our hearts and ask, where have we been wrong in our thoughts? You know what I think we should do is we should set up a scanner like they have at the airports. Set up a scanner here by the church doors on Sunday morning. Only thing is, only thing is this scanner scans our thoughts. You walk in the door and it'll scan your thoughts. And then it just keeps scanning the whole service. It's scanning right now. It's scanning your thoughts. What did you think? What were you thinking when you sat down or that person that's sitting next to you that you don't know sat down or maybe you do know them and what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking when we sang the songs? What were you thinking when we were praying? What are you thinking right now? And then what we're going to do is <clears throat> we're going to show that whole tape next week. I don't think anybody would show up all have turned aside. Now he's not even done yet. He says their throats are an open grave. Wow, there he, is, he, there he is talking about what was written in the Psalms. Where have we been wrong in our speech about God? Where have we misused his name? I cringe every time I'm walking behind people in the public. They're just like going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, do you people know what you're saying? How many times have we misused his name? How, long, how many times have we been wrong in what we have said to those who we love that are in our families and our friends? How many times have we misused our tongues? Paul writes, their tongues practice deceit. What about those little white lies? Or the way that we erect walls, the way we claim that we feel one way, but we actually feel another. Think of all the deceit. We think it's harmless, but God's listening. And God sees it. Paul writes, the venom of asps is under their lips. This picture is a picture of the tongue that uses slander to plant poison in another person's heart. That put down, 
that sharp, caustic word, the sarcasm that cuts someone off and depersonalizes another creature of God, another human being who is created in the same image that we are created. Using our tongue to control others, we're all guilty. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He's still not done. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, you and I may not have physically shed blood, but how often have we gone and where have we sown seeds of discord where we should have sown seeds of peace? Where have we shown discord and hatred and getting even? Maybe not right then and there on the spot, but we take that wrong and we plant it in our heart and we're going to carry that thing with us. We're going to carry it with us and we're just going to let it grow and fester and we're going to keep this permanent record of wrongs. And the next time that we see this person, it's just going to pop out a little bit at a time. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. When we admit that we're sinners, that we've been wrong, that's when the law has done its work. The law is God's word, just as the gospel is. When we admit we're wrong, that's when the law has done its work. And Paul writes in 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law clearly shows us our sin. Every thought, word, deed, desire, that is contrary to the will of God. The law stops us in our tracks and shuts us up. No excuses. No ifs, ands, or buts. Admitting and confessing that we're wrong, that we're wrong, and that's the hardest thing for us as human beings to do. Because what you and I do is we make up excuses. We make up excuses. Yes, I shouldn't have done that, but... Well, my friends were all doing it. She provoked me. He provoked me. Well, my patience finally wore out. Everybody else was doing the same thing. There are no excuses. The law shows us that the whole world is accountable to God. So where is the gospel in all of this? Where is God's love in all of this today? It's just as Paul wrote. In verses 1 through 8, that God is faithful. It's all about God's faithfulness. Because in all of God's faithfulness, there is hope and there is forgiveness. And we so clearly find that, for example, in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son, listen, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God the Father did not give the law or send Jesus Christ into this world to destroy us. Yes, he spoke the law, but he did it to make us aware of our sin and our need for a Savior. Christ came into the world to show us our sins and also grant us forgiveness and 
hope, and the promise of eternal life. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is faithful, and he keeps all of his promises. That's what John wrote in 1 John, when if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is incredibly good news. And this good news, this good news that Christ came into the world to save us reveals the depths of God's love and his mercy for you and for me. As we reflect on that, think about that, rejoice in that good news, two things happen. Our pride and defensiveness are stripped away and we can finally let go of this illusion that we are always right, that we're self-righteous. We could honestly examine ourselves and find freedom from guilt and sin by admitting our wrongs and finding forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Confession, repentance, that leads to a changed heart. When it comes to confessing our sins to God and to those around us, Paul writes in Colossians 3, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. With a changed heart, we forgive as we have been forgiven, and being forgiven means confessing. The gospel, the good news of forgiveness through Christ encourages you and I to go to those whom we have wronged, which includes God and our fellow human beings, those in our families, our friends, to go to them and to confess and to repair and to be reconciled with them. That involves going to them and making confession and asking for and receiving forgiveness. But when we do that, we do it in the right way. We avoid words like if, but, maybe, perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I could have tried harder. Possibly I should have waited to hear more. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but you really upset me. Those kinds of words and those phrases are all statements that make our confession to God and to our fellow human beings simply superficial statements that are designed to get someone to stop bothering us and all it does is transfers the fault and the guilt. When we ask for forgiveness, we confess and we admit specifically what it was that we did and we acknowledge the hurt. Honey, I am sorry that I said those words. Those words were hurtful. I know they cut deep into your spirit. It's my fault. I should not have gotten upset. I am sorry. Will you grant me forgiveness? I will do my best to do better in the future. No ifs. No ands and no buts. Not with God and not with our fellow family members and our friends. 
So what about our unfaithfulness? Like said in the beginning, it's a pretty tough message today. But it's also a message that gives you and I hope and joy, knowing that Jesus still loves us and provides for the cure for all of our unfaithfulness. Now, so Paul writes in Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's what we're going to celebrate now in Holy Communion. That in Holy Communion, we really do receive the body and blood of Christ with the bread and the wine. We really do receive the forgiveness of sins. That we really are strengthened for the days ahead. That's what we're going to celebrate. We're going to take time to confess our sins. And for those of you who are guests with us today, we don't want you to feel compelled that you have to take communion. If that's something that you just really don't want to do today, that's fine. That's okay. If you want to come forward with your arms crossed, receive a blessing, we certainly would welcome you to do that. And of course, a reminder, there is uh, the, the white cup is the, the grape juice and the dark is the wine uh, when you come forward. If you join with me in prayer. Father, we do come to you this morning. We confess to you. We confess to you that we're sinners. Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross and that you openly received the nails and the crown of thorns and the scourging. And that you allowed your blood to flow for each and every one of us. We confess to you today that we have been unfaithful. We've been unfaithful in the way that we've acted. We've been unfaithful in the way that we have thought, the things that we have desired after. We just pray, Father, that for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, and his holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death, that you would grant us forgiveness for all of our sins. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. And he gave it to them and he said, Drink from it, all of you. This cup is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Come now and receive this forgiveness that is yours and mine in Christ Jesus. This has all been prepared for you.